from Book of Romans. The title is what it should be, which is up there, Atonement, which is not in our bulletin. It's uh, Atonement by, by Grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, so let me pray before I begin to read. Heavenly Father, I ask your kindness once again upon us this week here at Hope Church, this little blip on the screen of the universe, but yet, Lord, a most important place right now as we stand upon holy ground, as we desire to hear your word. And it is our faith and our confession and our belief that these are your words to us that these are your words to me and to each individual here today. I pray, Father, by your Spirit that you would make yourself known to us in a most intimate way. That we realize that we are hearing the words of Christ speaking to us through these words penned by the Apostle Paul, who was carried along by the Spirit as he wrote. So Lord, I pray that you will use these for your glory and for our edification. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine, for, divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of, of the one who has faith in Jesus. May the Lord bless this reading of his word today in this place. Now last week we looked at verse 21, and we looked at the word but now, and it's a turning point, it's a time of contrast, it's a time of changing directions, and I mentioned that it was a, a way of changing directions both logically in the scheme of the letter that Paul has written, but also in a, in a temporal way. But now, uh, something has happened. We now are in a new age. We are now in a different time. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It is a time when the Son of God, the one who was promised, has now come and completed everything that was promised and witnessed to by the law and the prophets as we saw at the very back part of chapter, of verse 21. He's been manifested. This is a term in Grammar, that means that it is completed. It is a done act. But it is an act that continues to bear weight. He has been completely revealed and manifest to us. And it says, it is apart from the law, as we have seen 
and talked about several times. In the argument from the beginning of this book, Paul is addressing Jews and the rest of the world. And addressing them in such a way that brings them all together and brings them commonality. And so we, we see that uh, uh, God has uh, brought this righteousness, as he says in the beginning, apart from the law. It's a revealed righteousness from heaven in Jesus Christ. But the law and the prophets have always witnessed to it. As you know this verse and these verses, um, Jesus saying in, in Luke chapter 24, He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets that have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is the law and the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the, the things concerning himself. And then he writes, uh, then Luke writes for us and says, records for us, then Jesus said to them in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then we looked at some other verses from 1 Peter last week about this salvation that the prophets have been speaking about, maybe not really knowing who or how and when, but that God was going to provide this Messiah, this King from the line of David, this promise from Isaiah uh, 11, where that, uh, that unto us a child is born, a, a son is given, and upon him will be the government upon his shoulders, and he shall be called all these glorious names. Because that's who he is. He's the divine son of God. And so he says, this is not plan B. This is... God's plan from the very beginning. This is what he has ordained from the very beginning. And we looked at how this separation that took place in the garden in Genesis 3 of this, of this contrast, this contrast of the righteousness of God versus the unrighteousness of God. And how we saw this contrast, as one commentator writes, that we see this wrath of God to the righteousness of God. We see condemnation. But now as we've read today, and is in chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we see condemnation, now we see justification. We have this but now moment in the bondage that we've read in chapter 7, verse uh, 6, and even in chapter 6, verse 22, we were in bondage to sin, but now we are moving into freedom, and we have now freedom in Christ. And then the final contrast, we saw this alienation take place in Genesis 3. This alienation of Adam and Eve, this alienation of shame and guilt upon himself, this hiding from God, they're hiding from each other, and now because of the curse, now there's an alienation of this creation that God created for Adam and uh, Eve to work in, and for Adam to actually... Uh, work as a high priest because, again, I said a great subject that would be to look at sometime is to realize that how the Garden of Eden was actually a picture of the temple, the heavenly temple. And, and Adam being the very first high priest, the very first priest serving in this garden. And so what was Adam and Eve's call was to be able to have children and to have more children created in the image of God to be more uh, priests working in this garden and watching the garden grow until the fullness of the earth was full of this garden, which is the temple of the Lord. To reflect the heavenly temple where God is present. And we see how that is taking place in the architecture, in the creating of the tent and the tabernacle, and the artwork, and everything that you read in here that is very boring, 
and that is mundane and monotonous. But folks, it's there because they're pointing to the sense of pointing us to the heavenly kingdom, to the heavenly temple, to the place where God dwells, of, of God coming to be with us. And so we see this exclusion between the man and the woman and this alienation taking place and this separation between God and then internally guilt and shame and this separation of this, this peace. Now a person understanding what sin is. And separation from other human beings and creation we now see that as in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that now, because of Christ, and but now in Christ, we are now participants. We are now no longer children of wrath. We are now people of the kingdom of God, people of Christ's family, participants in a family that we never had a right to be a part of before, but now very much are. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, This grace was given to us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time, but it has now, another but now, has been revealed through the appearing of His Son to the Savior. All pointing to this but now, all pointing to this transition, this turning point in history, a changing and then he says, apart from the law, those, one, comment says, one commentator says, those who revert to the law for righteousness will be extremely disappointed because the atonement provided in the law does not give any place for real forgiveness. Old, Old Testament sacrifices cannot and do not bring forgiveness. They simply foreshadow the forgiveness effected through Christ. So, today we're looking at the, this chapter again, but I want to now read slowly. Because I know we read through this quickly, but I want to be able to see slowly how phrases and grammar and how all this stuff is not for geeks. I know Pastor Nate says that sometimes. It's for nerds and geeks. Well, I love being a nerd and a geek. And I want you all to be nerds and geeks when it comes to understanding grammar and phrases and prepositional phrases and how powerful these words are here. This, is, is these, this paragraph, as Martin Luther, as I mentioned last week, it's, it's not only the, the center of this epistle, he says it's the very center of the Bible. So notice again, I'm going to read again for you. Let's go slowly. And let the words, I like, let the words just drip. And just let them just do their work. Just listen to how Paul writes this beautiful sentences. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, and the law and the prophets bear witness to us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now notice faith. Faith is very important. He's mentioned it so many times in here. He's going to mention it many more times. As he says in, it's from faith. For faith. Notice he says, for all who believe. Notice the scope of this righteousness. Who gets this righteousness? For everyone who believes. You see how wide that is. But the next sentence, or this sentence, shows you the wideness, but narrows it down. It is not for everyone. This righteousness that Christ gave and died for us is not for every person, but only to those who believe. So we see this wideness, but the focus is very narrow. It's only for believers. And then he opens it wide again and he says, for there is no distinction. Then he goes back to what he, the, art, the uh, argument he's been making before that he's made in uh, 
chapter 3 here in verses 10. No one is righteous, no not one, no one understand, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about all of humanity here. You and me. And then he says, for there's no distinction. A verse that we've all memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same family. We're all from the same mold. We're all from the main same stuff because we come from Adam. And from Adam, the federal head of the family of humanity, we all have now been radically corrupted by sin in our being, in who we are. How we think, how we live, what we do. It's not to say we don't do anything good, but when it comes before God, we do nothing right unless we bring glory to God. Even the good things that we do are counted against us because if we do not do them for the glory of God, bringing the weight and the righteousness and the, and the, uh, the place of God in our lives, and we do it for ourselves, God is going to use even those against us on the day of judgment. So we all have sinned, and we all have fallen short of that glory. But notice now these words that he uses. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. We're going to go back to this probably in two months when I come back and preach again. It's such a pretty packed passage here that I'm sure there's, I know there's more sermons in here, but how many I do I want to give from this is really how I want to determine it. But again, we are justified, right? We are declared in a, it's a word, and we've mentioned this before, it's, in a, it's, it's the terms of a, in the imagery of, of a legal courtroom. We have legally now, in the eyes of God, in the courtroom of God, we are now legally declared righteous before God as if we have never sinned because of Christ. It's as if we've never done anything wrong, ever. We have that standing, and that's what the, he says here. And that word is used 29 times in Paul's writings. 35 times in the entire New Testament. 29 times from Paul. And are justified by his grace. And what is grace? Grace is an unmerited favor of God. We don't do anything, right? This is everything that God does for us. You and I aren't doing anything. Anything that we're doing can be found in the, the, uh, the preface of this book or what came before this. Everything that you and I do is certainly not glorious in the eyes of God. But because of God's love for us and because of God's grace, because of this unmerited favor, which is a gift, Paul writes. It's not something that we work for. It only can be received. A gift is received. So this unmerited favor, this grace of justification, how does it happen through the redemption? So we have justification, and we have redemption. And redemption is a word that is taken from the imagery of the slave market. Ransomed. People are bought. People are ransomed from slavery. They're bought with a price. You know the Bible talks about that you and I have been bought with a price because of Christ had paid that price for us. So this is a word of ransom. We've been bought with a price. We have been ransomed. That is in Christ Jesus. Now notice he says, whom God put forward. You see that this is the gift. This is grace that God put forward. What did he do? He put forward, he purposed, he delivered, he presented Christ as another big word, propitiation, which I've talked to you over the years I've been with you. 
what propitiation is. And now it's a word that is taken from the imagery of the temple and sacrifice. Propitiation, atoning sacrifice by his blood. How did this all take place? By his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. We're going to end there. Justified, redeemed, propitiated. Now, by his blood. There is several verses I'm going to ask you to not look at, but to write down as I read how important that word, that phrase is, by his blood. Because we've been justified through redemption as God. It was God who is the judge. It is God who is angry. It is God who hates sinners. It is God who sends us to hell. So God needs to be propitiated. And how is it done? By a ransom paid by the blood of someone else. But listen to these uh, passages. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read them, but you can write them down if you're taking notes. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now this is Paul speaking to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It was what I read to you last new. One of those, but now, right? Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, this exclusion, right, have now been brought near now closeness and participation, by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifying for the perfect, uh, pur purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, 
to the people, to all the people. He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us, that is, through his flesh. Something we've read uh, through Pastor Nate's preaching of 1 Peter, chapter 1, Peter 1 verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the last, and there's more, but this is the last you're going to hear. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all our sins. <clears throat> so we see how important the blood is in the New Testament. We see how important the blood is in the Old Testament because there are people who do not like reading the Old Testament because they don't like that God. And they don't like that bloody mess. And they don't like all that sacrificing. But really, it's grace. It's the favor of God that Leviticus teaches us and shows us what all those offerings are about. Those burnt offerings, those peace offerings, those sin offerings, those offerings are pointing to something that God is giving us so that we may have fellowship with him. Not that they, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, any of those things in and of themselves gave us forgiveness or purified us, but it was a promise. You see, the Old Testament is a promise. And in Christ it's fulfilled. And Augustine said this, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. But in the New Testament, the old is revealed. We see how in the Old Testament that we know that we see these pointing to Christ and the types and shadows that are leading us to Christ. In the, in the uh, New Testament, we now see how all the Old Testament was talking about Jesus and how that promise has now been completed, finished, and fulfilled. I hope you see that, because those are the lenses you need to understand the Bible. If you don't have those, folks, you aren't understanding the Bible. You don't see how the Bible fits together. You are looking at it in pieces. It's confusing. You don't understand. I know. I've been there many times in my life, even as a believer, wondering like, why on earth are we studying all this stuff? Before I got the lenses, before I got the understanding of how through the Bible all of this points to Christ. And it changes how you read the Bible. There's nothing boring in the Bible if you have lenses to see why it's there. Do you think that God would waste one word? Waste one word of the Bible? Why would he waste our time? Why would he be frivolous? Why would he put filler in there? He doesn't put any filler in there. It's the word of God for us 
to eat and drink from. So notice he says here that God put forward the one who we should fear, the one who will judge us, the one who hates sinners, the one who is going to have his wrath upon us, as it's been talking about in the beginning of this book. The wrath of God is upon these types of people. And you and I are certainly mentioned in all of it. So it's the wrath that we've got to worry about. That's why he says that there needs to be something done. So we need to be made right with God. And what is that? That's justification. How is justification done? It's through someone dying. It's through someone giving their life. So when you see this blood, it's not just about blood. It's meaning that somebody died. Somebody gave their life. That's what the blood is all about. Now, there are people who look to this and say, well, it's about, it's about not death, but it's about life that was given. And it is, but it's about death. They don't like to realize that God requires the death of something or someone. And the only one that can do that is Jesus because he is the perfect man. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the... the the Lamb of God without wrinkle or without spot, without sin. He is perfect in every way. And he ultimately turns God's wrath away. That's what propitiation is. If, the, if we can put that back up there, those definitions. Propitiation is turning away, assuaging the wrath of God, not only turning it away, but also the reason it is turned away is so that now God will be favorable to us. That's the difference. It's just not turned away. It's just not saying, okay, you know, wait till he's coming back for the next sacrifice because he's going to be angry as a hornet. You've got to do it all over again. And the answer is no. He's not like the pagan gods that need to be placated over and over again. People don't like the idea that this God, this loving God, needs to be, is angry and is wrathful and needs to be placated. But he does. He's a God who is just, as it says here in uh, chapter, verse 26. He's just. He's right. He judges as a, the most fair and perfect judge there can be. But not only is he the judge, but he is also the one who justifies He's also the one who provides the way so that he will now look upon us favorably. But because of, of uh, propitiation, there is also expiation. And expiation is the removal of sin or guilt. Because where there is a transgression, there is shame. And there is guilt. And so that's what has to take place. So we see that redemption, the dying of someone... The giving of a ransom, this redemption now changes the way things are. Expiation takes away that sin, takes away that guilt, takes away that thing that you and I have before God. Now, there are people who want to use the word expiation here instead of propitiation because they cannot think of God being a wrathful God. They cannot think of God being an angry God. So there are translations out there that use the word expiation. Now, expiation is a very much a part of this process, but they want to stay away from the anger and wrath of God. They don't like that. They can't, they can't fathom that this kind of God is that way, that he needs to be placated. So they say, oh, we understand guilt and shame. Everybody has guilt and shame. So let's use expiation because expiation takes you and me off the hook. And now we can go on. We don't have to worry about God. God's not angry with us. But if we read the scripture, we realize that God is very angry with us. And so he needs to be propitiated. So. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Because this, to me, is the perfect place, I think, we see both expiation and propitiation. The Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16. 
Now notice, this is a place, it says here in, uh, you, uh, if you have your Bibles, it's in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord says, tell Aaron uh, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Now, it's interesting to know that the word propitiation that is used in Greek is also the same word that is used for mercy seat because on the mercy seat is where forgiveness is and that's where it's sprinkled and that's where God forgives. That's where on the Day of Atonement it's sprinkled. The blood, we're going to see this, is sprinkled upon that uh, Ark of the Covenant. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for burnt offering. So what we're going to, so if you look at the beginning verses, he's talking about how he is being prepared, how he is being prepared to be the high priest who is going to go into the holy of holies behind the veiled curtain and be able to be properly prepared, sanctified, cleansed for his own sins with his bodily uh, and his body cleansed and with these robes and with these linens put on. The, th the thing is that high priests had to put on a costume. Christ never put on a costume because he, never, he is our high priest. He's always our high priest. He does not sin. The high priest would have to put on these robes of righteousness, these linens to, to be as the type and shadow of who Christ is as Christ goes in into the very holy of holies and ultimately sacrifice himself for us on the cross. So he says in verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. In verse 7, so I'm going to kind of skip through some of these. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, which no one really understands what that means. It, it says in the footnotes, it could be the name of a place or a demon, or also it could mean the goat that goes away. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time worrying about that. Not too many people do, but it says here, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell shall be, uh, uh, Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness. And then he says in verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. And then he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of, uh, um, of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and of all their sins. And then he goes on and he says, in verse, um, uh, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he then shall present the live goat. Well, I, I skipped something here. In uh, uh, verse 18. Then he shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement and take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his, with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And he has made, and when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall then present the live goat. So what we see is that this, this sprinkling of blood has been put upon the mercy seat for, as an offering to take away this sin, this guilt. So we see expiation here. Expiation is being done at this time of sprinkling. 
it is now taking away the shame and the guilt of their, of their, uh, their sin over all of the people. And now he says in verse 20 that he's now going to present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put, he shall put on, their, on the head of the goat and send it away in wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So what has happened here? We see now this scapegoat. We have a goat that's been killed and sprinkled. We now have a goat that has, is alive, but all the sins, he is our legal, vicarious substitute for the people of God. This goat is now a substitute, legal uh, in, the le- in the eyes of God, legally now this goat is taking away the sins away from the people. And as this goat goes away, so does the wrath of God. The wrath of God is now sent away so that God will now on the Day of Atonement look favorably upon the people of God, upon Israel who have sprinkled through expiation now this this forgiveness of sins, this cleansing of sin, this sin and guilt, and now a being propitiated for, now being substituted, now being one who has taken away God's wrath and is now favorable. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what the Day of Atonement is about. That's what this is about. We see that we, we now come to Christ. We now come to the table. Why? Because he shed his blood for us. On the cross, it is where forgiveness was taken place and has taken place. It is where God put all of the sin of humanity, not just Israel, but all of humanity, upon Christ, upon the cross. So no doubt when he cried in the garden and he sweat drops like blood, and when he cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what happened. He became our propitiation. He was taking like that scapegoat all of our sins upon himself, all of the wrath of God upon him, which was, of course, great. And that's why he would pray, my my God, if you can have this cup pass for me. He wasn't wimping out. He just understood what all of the Old Testament promises were about and that he was that scapegoat that was going to take all of the wrath, the alienation, the disgusting stench of our sin, the impurity of our sin, the, the, everything that we can use as an adjective about our sin. And what does he do? He puts it upon his son, and his body is broken, but now broken for you and me so that you and I can understand that Christ died, our sacrifice. He is our redemption. He is our Passover lamb. He is our, our, uh, the, uh, the scapegoat. He is everything for us. He is our atonement. So that you and I can eat and drink this freely. But who is this table for? Only for people who believe. Right? That's what it says there. It's for all who believe by faith that Jesus was the scapegoat. He was also the goat that was killed and slain and sacrificed and his blood sprinkled, as all those verses I read for you. So when we see propitiation, we see, we see that, uh, that in Isaiah 53, right, that the witness, all the prophets and the, the law witness to the coming of Christ. Isaiah 53, and God has laid upon him the iniquity of us, the iniquity of us all. That was all foretold. It was witnessing to who Christ was. That's why Christ in in Luke 24 says, don't you guys get it? Nicodemus, don't you see? You're a man learned in Israel, one of the most most powerful people in Israel, the most learned man there is, and you don't know who I am? You must be born again. 
You must, you must be given eyes to be able to see this because, folks, some people, you hear today, people online, may hear this and say, what's the big deal? But it's huge. If, you're, if you feel the weight of you and I, as Martin Luther did, tried as a monk, tried, impeccable, doing everything that he can. Charles Wesley, <laughs> the man who wrote these great hymns, was a man, a clergyman, who wrote these great songs about this, how can it be that, thou my, that my God should die for me? He finally, he was a clergyman, knew all this stuff until God opened his eyes and gave him faith because it's from faith to faith to the people who God has given faith. It's all grace. It's a gift. It's something that you and I can't earn. We can't merit. That's why when we eat and drink this, we can't do this in an unworthy manner. We can't think that you and I deserve this. You and I can't think that we ever could possibly use me as an example or you use as an example to somebody else and saying, gee, be as holy as Jim. Wow. Or myself holding myself up and saying, I'm not as bad as that guy. And so that's why Paul is writing this to the Roman church because he's saying, I want you to know the gospel. I want you to know exactly what's going on here. I don't want you to ever be deceived. I don't ever want you to be ignorant. I'm going to tell you over and over again how many times it takes every time we eat and drink, every time we stand up here. It's what Hope Church is supposed to stand for, is that you understand with clarity that when somebody asks you what justification is, folks, you should have a cue card. When someone talks to you about propitiation, you should understand what propitiation is, or expiation, or redemption. These are not words that people should run from and say, oh, wait a minute, here's Pastor Jim's card. Call him. No, eh, wrong answer. Folks, we should be literate. We should be well-versed in what this stuff, if we understand the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, then you better come and talk to us. Because as I said last week, the church has failed as being disciple-makers. We do not teach you what it means to be a follower of Christ and what that is all talking about. So, now, with Christ, who gave his life, we now, as you and I eat this, we are, there is no more condemnation. That's something that, that is great to know on a daily basis because you and I still sin. You and I still, we don't practice in, right? As Christians, we aren't to keep on practicing, but we do perform sinful things in our life. We think it, we do it. We say it. But because of the blood of Christ, because it is finished, because our salvation is not based upon anything you and I've done, but based upon everything that Jesus has done. And if our faith is, and if he, we are justified by faith and the object of our faith, which is Jesus, we never ever have to worry about our salvation again. That doesn't mean that we don't ever stop worrying about our sin. We don't ever stop trying to be holy. We don't ever stop of trying to hold each other accountable. We don't ever stop of talking about holiness. But the fact is, is before the eyes of God, we never have to worry about God's wrath because that scapegoat has taken God's anger and now looks upon you and me because we're justified. And if we were a court of law, the judge would say, not guilty, not even guilty. You've never been guilty. What an amazing grace and gift that God has given to us. So as we get ready for this meal, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to grant us the enjoyment and the excitement of these words. These are very powerful words for us, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, if they have not been powerful before, that it is not my enthusiasm or the tone of my voice or the excitement that I present 
but that the weight of these words of justification and redemption and propitiation by your blood, Jesus, that this would be a time for everybody's heart to be jiving, for everybody's heart to be excited and be thankful. And that, Father, if there are those here today that are not, then, Lord, I pray as we are called to protect this table in saying, do not eat, do not drink, until you understand what it's all about. So, Lord, I pray that you work in the hearts of people here today. And there may be some who are here today that are your children, Lord, who are believers and who are followers of, of this Jesus, your Son, you've given to us. But yet, Lord, have not felt this worthiness. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that you would convince them that this is something that you desire with great, great passion for them for them to partake in. But Lord, I pray that this is, these passages, these verses are, are the very template, the very structure of how we build our confession of our faith. And that, Lord, we present the truth to the world and to each other here if we are true followers of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank for you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for, for taking the cross, the guilt, and the shame. And that in you alone, there is only salvation. There is no one else upon whom we can call to be saved but you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us this gift. And thank you for give, sending us the Holy Spirit, to help us to understand this. Because, Lord, there was a time in our life when we could care less what this means. And, Lord, I pray that we all give great care to what this means. So prepare us, Lord, as we eat and drink, as we take, partake this ordinance and this sacrament, this, this means of grace to feed our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.